Americans have to understand that this game has always been and will always be about buckets. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Tough Buckets Podcast. Today is November 15th, and uh, this is our first episode since uh, tip-off of the NBA season this year. So we have a a little bit to cover here. A lot of interesting things have taken shape in the league that we love. But uh, to get us started, as always, I'm going to introduce the other hosts of the podcast, starting off in Omaha, Nebraska. How are you doing, Jason? Doing good, buddy. Doing good. Um... Loving the weather here uh, in Nebraska. We're experiencing uh, what I would call a very unusual situation with temperatures uh, in the mid to upper 60s for multiple days here in November, which is unheard of. But it's been nice. Been able to take advantage of some uh, of some nice weather. Get some yard work done. Get outside. Get the dog walked. And yeah, just loving life. Loving life. That's for sure. Yeah, someone's going to have to go back and tally how many times we complained about Nebraska weather or yeah. <laughs> were pleasantly surprised by it because usually we're complaining about it at yeah. this point. But Hard uh, to complain the other, these days. Yeah, exactly. And the other host of the podcast is Sam Kavan down in Texas who actually just saw who had a first, a first look at the potential rookie of the year, Wimbenyama, take on his favorite team, the Miami Heat, in San Antonio. So Sam has, uh, Sam's going to tell us a little bit about his experience at that game. And, uh, yeah, take it away, Sam. Yeah, so it was Sunday the, um, the 12th. So Sunday, November 12th, I got to take a little road trip down to San Antonio, which to get down to the arena was less than a three-hour drive from – uh, where I'm staying, so not too bad. Uh, got to see the Spurs take on the Heat, who, and the Spurs were like totally healthy. The Heat were missing Kyle Lowry and Tyler Hero. Uh, Lowry was still on the sidelines with, uh, he just kind of had typical like late 30s rest game. Um, Hero had an an- got an ankle sprain last week, probably going to be out another two to three weeks yet, so he wasn't even on the sidelines, not traveling with the team for the rest of that road trip. Um, but I was man, I was getting nervous just because these big rookies have uh, kind of a recent track record of suffering fairly significant injuries early on in their seasons or even in the preseason. But Wembenyama made it all the way through to the game on Sunday, so I got to see him play. I got to see uh, Jimmy and Bam, and I mean pretty much all the Heat guys outside of Lowry and Hero. And one of the things I noticed really quickly into the game is I mean you can tell just by social media the the pure star power uh that Victor Wembanyama already has um and just his presence even in warm-ups the dude is just so much taller than everyone else like laughably so uh it just sticks out like ridiculously and he he struggled from three greatly from three in the game so not a definitely had not a great shooting night I think he went Oh, shoot. One for seven, two for seven from deep, something like that. Not fantastic. So he did have some some great buckets, of course. But what I noticed was the Spurs took a big lead over the Heat. They were up 19 at one point in the second quarter. The crowd was more excited when Wembenyama checked into the game after his first stint on the bench than they were for almost every one of their buckets in the first half. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the reaction he got from checking back into the game – 
I, I think outside of uh, their backup center had a really nice backdoor pass to uh, good old Doug McDermott for a, for a dunk. Other than that basket, I think that was probably the loudest cheer we heard in that arena uh, for the entire first half. I mean, and just some of those baskets he got inside. There was one he caught the ball at the top of the lane, two steps, didn't he have to take a dribble, easy dunk. He had a cup. He had a uh, the Heat had a guard rotate onto him, which already is a recipe for dis- a disaster with a guy that tall. But he hit this tough running floater where I mean, he releases that thing from so high that it's not really a floater as much as a line drive off the center of the backboard. Um, I, I don't, yeah, I, I, it looks like a floater, but the way he releases it really can't be called a floater. Hit that. I mean, some of those offensive plays he made were just ridiculous to see. His three point shooting. Like I said, it wasn't great, but only one of the looks he took was really a bad look because his release point is so high. The Heat had uh, Haywood Highsmith closing out a lot on him on the wing when he was taking those threes, and Highsmith's a pretty big, agile dude. I mean, I think he's 6'9", 6'10", somewhere in there. And outside of one contest, he, he was sprinting straight at him, hands up, and it his release was totally unaffected. I mean... He just didn't knock him down, which we expected his rookie year. He wasn't going to be a great three-point shooter. That was really his biggest weakness coming into the draft and all the scouting reports that we read that, uh, yes, he has a good a good-looking stroke, but he is just – the efficiency isn't there yet. And, and you expect that to come along in future years, but it was great for the Heat on Sunday night because he kept missing – but in a few years, there's just so little you can do to contest that with where he released. I mean, he's releasing that ball at like nine and a half feet in the air. It's it's absurd. Um, so not, not great from three. And then defensively, he is definitely still a rookie on the wing. Like he, there is this one play where Duncan Robinson hit him with a little hezzy kind of on the short corner and went in for a layup. Yeah, I saw and, that. Oh, he he was lost like he needed a map his perimeter defense definitely still needs some work I mean it he's just not adjusted to how fast those NBA guys are with the ball on the wing and you you shouldn't really hopefully your defensive scheme doesn't have your seven foot four guy covering on the perimeter very much and he didn't get isolated out there a ton but when he did it was not great like again he was able to contest contest on jump shots really well just because he's his wingspan is so huge but he got beat to the rim a couple times. But on the interior, I, I don't think he recorded a ton of actual blocks, but the Heat's offensive attack changed noticeably every time he subbed out of the game. Uh, Zach Collins, and I think their backup center is uh, Bassey is his last name. Those two, at decent rim protectors, but the Heat were way more taking outside jumpers when Wemby was in the game. It just altered almost every shot that came in there when he was able to set up in the paint, um, which just shows even during his poor shooting nights offensively, um, and of course the 19-year-old who really hasn't even grown into his seven foot four frame yet isn't going to be great in the perimeter. He's still a top-tier rim defender in the league. Um, yeah, those those were the Wembenyama, uh I guess the takes I had, the the kind of scouting that I did on Sunday. Uh, the Heat themselves got big performances from Bam Adebayo, who's been on an absolute, maybe like third-team All-NBA level tear this year. So far, he's looking fantastic. 
Um, with no hero, their offense really struggled in the first quarter especially. I think at one point midway through the first quarter, they were shooting 16% from the field. Um, j- getting good looks just could not get anything to fall. Um, Kevin Love had a rough shooting night in the first half. And then Jimmy was regular season Jimmy. He really wasn't being super aggressive looking for shots. But um, Jaime Jaquez Jr. came in, played really solid minutes throughout the whole game. Uh Honestly, for a rookie, I'm surprised. Now, I know he played three or four years at UCLA, which you expect rookies who put in that much time at college to have a higher floor than a lot of other rookies to kind of recognize the game a little bit better. Um, But really didn't make too many mistakes from what I could see. Um, And Duncan Robinson had a fantastic game. I mean, 26 points. He he had that aforementioned Hezzy dribble on Wembenyama, and he – totally mixed up uh my old Baylor guy Jeremy Sohan on this one play he hit a like crossover dribble into a Harden-esque step back pump faked Sohan went flying by him in the corner and then hit a three like big three uh down the stretch of the second half uh very entertaining game I wish I could go to a lot more in person um but the the heat looked great even without their in the regular season, their primary offensive engine and hero. Um, I don't know. It, it, team's looking a lot better on a six-game win streak than when they started one and four, which is, you know, go figure. So surprising. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It was, a, it was a great experience. I'm hoping I can make it to another one maybe in the spring, go see him play in, in Dallas so I can get a look at Luka too. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I'm glad you went and saw a game. How did uh, Point Sohan look in person? Did they go to that? Yeah, so they did. I, uh, they did, but they didn't. They really did not run that much like a traditional offense. I thought some of the shots that he was hitting, I was like, he was not doing that two years ago at Baylor. And if he was, they probably would have made it deeper in the tournament. I mean, he's knocking down. He knocked down both the threes he took. I think it seemed a lot more that he's like on paper starting at the point guard, but uh, Keldon Johnson and Devin Vassell were really the running that offense, um, especially when Wembenyama was on the bench. Those two, I think, took 40 combined shots, if I remember the box score correctly, um, and really seemed to be setting up a lot of the action. So Sohan had – I mean, he, you know, he's still the point guard, still set up some plays, but it seemed like he's just kind of listed at the point guard spot, whereas he really operates more like a kind of a wing in, in a lot of their offensive sets. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I had, a, I had a couple questions for Sam. Uh, Sam, what was the atmosphere like uh, inside the arena? And do you think that it's just going to be crazy uh, at every home game this year for the Spurs just based on Wemby and, and the attention that he brings to every game? I think definitely. If they Now, if the problem with the Spurs this year is – based off how they've started the season record-wise, by the time you get to February or March, they're going to be already eliminated from the playoffs if they keep up on this route, Um, which Spurs fans are super loyal. They're still going to be there. Uh, But if if Wemby can continue to have, like, at least every other game statistical output that he's having, I think there's no reason that – to assume he won't continue drawing these type of crowds and getting them this excited just to see him play. Yeah, and then I had one more question. How much did you have to pay for a beer there inside the arena? Yeah, it was. <laughs> so 
I, I was able to get a souvenir cup, like 24 ounce draft from the Pizza Hut there for like uh, 11.99. <laughs> so that's not, if you go, that, per- that's not that bad. I mean, Wait, you, really? got a, you got a beer yeah. from Pizza Hut. <laughs> well, yeah, they well right outside of the section we were sitting in, they had a little the little pizza hut thing, you know, like personal pan pizzas and stuff. Which I didn't get any pizza, but they had uh, they had draft beer there. So you know, I figured I was like, well, a, a twelve ounce draft for six dollars is not the worst I've I've even ever been to at a bar. So I no, I didn't feel too bad paying for it. No, it, it wasn't fantastic, but it, honestly, I expected it to be a little higher. Yeah, that's not really bad at all. I I didn't think that's bad at all. All right. Uh, in other news, something that happened. I think this happened last night in the Golden State Timberwolves matchup. Uh, Draymond Green put Rudy Gobert in a in a rear chokehold, like a wrestling move, and didn't release it. He had him in that thing for like at least four seconds. Did you guys see the video? <laughs> It looked like oh yeah. It looked like oh, yeah. he was gonna choke choke him out almost. You know? He might have had that intention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I so think it, that's what his as, plan was. As soon as Draymond so basically just to paint the picture, Clay Thompson and uh Jaden McDaniels get tied up at midcourt, kind of running down running down uh for the next play. And uh they start grabbing each other's jersey, kinda like grab onto each other, and before it can even escalate, Rudy Gobert starts getting close to it. Uh, you know, maybe to break it up, maybe to join in on the fight. Who knows? It never progressed that far because Draymond Green comes flying in from like the other side of the court, puts Rudy Gobert in a chokehold, and is then suspended for the rest of the game. And I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Draymond Green also was recently suspended in the game against the Cleveland Cavaliers when he got into it with Donovan Mitchell. So that's already two suspensions for Draymond this early in the season. And, and that I was just last most, week. Yeah, that was that last week. Okay, I can't. I couldn't even remember. This this stuff happens with Draymond. Pretty, you know. I mean, it happens consistently. This is this is what we expect from the guy. But the most interesting thing that came out of this for me was Rudy Gobert after the game had a quote saying that he knew Draymond Green was going to try to get himself ejected from this game once he heard Steph Curry was 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 uh, on the injury reserve for this game. So two minutes into the game, Draymond does something to get himself ejected to probably so he doesn't have to subject himself to playing with an awful Warriors group without Steph. Who to to the Warriors credit, I I believe their young guys did play pretty good that game from what I saw. But uh, for those of you who don't know, the Draymond beef, the Draymond and Gobert beef stems from the last five years of them competing for Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, Draymond thinks that. Rudy got it when he should have got it, and maybe the other way around for Rudy, too. Uh, he also tweeted, one, remember when Rudy punched Kyle Anderson last year in the play-in? Uh, Draymond then tweeted, insecurity is loud, uh, you know, probably because Rudy Gobert had some choice words for Draymond after the Jordan Poole incident came out. But, I mean, come on, dude. You ruined the season. You ruined the vibes for the whole season for the, your team last year when you punched your teammate. So that season was a dud. And now this year you've already been suspended from two games out of like the first 11. And now you're adding problems to a team that already had size issues. They can't play with teams because they lack size. Steph is now dealing with a mysterious right knee injury. And now on top of that, you have one of your leaders going and putting 
the other team's center in a chokehold. So, I mean, you can make of this what you will, but we might not see a contract extension from Draymond. Yeah, I mean, we, t- I, yeah, I think we, I think we talked a couple of times uh, in last season's, a couple of episodes last season about Draymond, and sooner or later, you know, management and Steve Kerr and the entire organization is just going to have to say enough is enough. I mean, I mean, it's going to get to the point where every time he steps on the floor, you just have no idea how his actions are going to impact a game. And there's just no way you can go through a season and especially the playoffs, you know, having that cloud just like lingering over your head every game. That's just not, you just can't do that. No, not at all. And speaking on uh, Rudy Gobert's quote about, and you know, Jake, you mentioned with Steph's kind of undisclosed knee injury going on right now. Uh, Rudy Gobert is saying that he knew Draymond was going to try to get ejected because he always does that when when Steph isn't playing. I'm reading this article from CBS Sports right now. It looks like there is a pretty prominent trend. So Draymond has been ejected from 18 games over his career, which is quite a few in this era of the NBA where with, you know, flagrant fouls and technicals and, and, you know, a little bit better governed than it was back maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, and there's a strong correlation between when Draymond's play kind of deteriorated from that all NBA all-star level down to important starter levels, which I would say happened probably around 2018, 2019. Um, so the first seven ejections of Draymond's career all came when Curry was playing, but then starting from the 2019, 20 season, which is that was that year that the Warriors, you know, Kevin Durant left, Steph got hurt, um, just a disastrous season for the Warriors, and Draymond's play started to drop off significantly compared to his past career outputs. Since then, he's been ejected 11 times, and seven of them have taken place in games that Curry wasn't playing in. Wow, so Gobert is on to something here. He is on to something. I, I, if I would have thought about it earlier, I would have went and tried to figure out what percentage of games that Steph didn't play in, like, what percent chance there was that Draymond was going to get himself ejected. Um, I I don't have the mental capacity to do all that right now, but think about Steph. He's really only missed significant time in, in that 2020 bubble season leading up to the bubble season. He definitely missed a lot there. And then sometime in the 2021 season, but last year he played pretty much the whole year. Um, The year before that, their championship year, he played pretty much the whole season. So, I, I don't know. That that Rudy might be onto something. Gobert might be onto something. <laughs> it's just it's just funny to think about Draymond before the game starts hearing the curry isn't gonna play, being like, oh, what the hell am I gonna pull today? What do I gotta do to get myself ejected from this game? Oh, I'm playing Rudy <laughs> Gobert. Let me just put him in a chokehold. Let me <laughs> let me try it. Let's just let me try and choke out the Frenchman. Yeah, that that sounds yeah. like a good idea. And I'm I'm not a Rudy Gobert fan by by any means, but when this altercation started, like when Clay and and McDaniel's were kind of pulling each other around by the jerseys, Draymond literally is not in the frame of the TV camera picture. Um, and as soon as Gobert attempts to what I interpret as holding Clay back, Draymond jumps in like Batman and just. Yeah, that's one of the crazy. That's one of the most technically sound chokeholds I've ever seen in the NBA. 
Sam, it looked like he was sneaking up behind Gobert and pressing triangle for a silent takedown. It really did look like a silent takedown in those old Batman Arkham games. I mean, he came out of nowhere. <laughs> that's what those that's what those uh, Joker goons had to feel like in those games, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, b- and before we move on to our next segment, we kind of talked about the Wolves a little bit, but this team has really impressed me. And honestly, I think any basketball fan can acknowledge that this team is taking a step from last year. And you look at a player who was getting clowned a lot last year in Rudy Gobert for, you know, kind of regressing and not being able to finish around the basket at the same level he did in Utah. And there was critics, you know, just circling Gobert last season. And he's had a great, a great start to this season, I'd say. And most of that is because Minnesota has competent perimeter defenders around him. Instead of D'Angelo Russell at your point guard, you have Mike Conley, who knows how to play team defense, especially with a guy like Rudy Gobert, uh, spanning back to their time in Utah. And Jaden McDaniels, who has emerged as an all-defensive type wing who can pretty much guard one through four and sometimes fives, depending on the the weight of the five. And that's a revelation. And now you got Anthony Edwards to buy in on defense, and now he's an elite defender. So when you have the perimeter locked down like that, it's similar to some of the good defensive teams we saw in Utah when they were able to you know, win Defensive Player of the Year for Rudy Gobert because they could put other competent defenders around him, and that's what Minnesota was finally able to do this year. And I think even Carl Anthony Towns has made an emphasis to, you know, not be such a, a black spot on their on their defense like he was last year and in years before. But and also it's it is very early in the season, obviously, but you have to look at the type of wins that this team has put together. They've already beat Denver, they've already beat Boston. And they beat Golden State two times in their first nine, ten games here to start the season. So I think that's a major tell for what's to come for this Minnesota team. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Very impressive. I mean, we talked about Ant and his play, you know, in the FIBA championships. And if he was going to be able to roll that in, you know, to a successful start to the season and He's playing at an all-star level. Like you said, you got perimeter defenders shoring up the defense, funneling everything in to Gobert, who's one of the you know top rim protectors in the NBA. It's all worked out pretty well, you know, through the first ten games of the season. I have to see it happen, you know, for the next month or two before I really think it's more of a trend, you know, more of a, uh, an actuality than an anomaly. I guess for me. Absolutely. And if if uh, if it wasn't for Jokic being Jokic this year again and, and Luka having a fantastic year and Steph putting up ridiculous numbers from the field, um, Anthony Edwards could definitely be in an MVP conversation right now, especially with especially with how he has his team playing. Unfortunately, the guys at the top of that MVP list right now are just so statistically absurd that it's probably not in the cards for this season. But, um, I mean, you could definitely see – I don't know how positionless the All-NBA teams are going to be this year and how that really works. Um, so, I don't know if first All-NBA team is going to be uh, on the agenda this year for him either. But, I, I mean, this could definitely be a second-team All-NBA season with absolute MVP potential a few years down the road. All right. That takes us to the next segment of the show. 
this is an idea that was presented by Jason this morning, and it's called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And there's definitely been a lot of good stuff coming out of the start of the season, but there's also been a lot of ugly and poor play from a lot of teams, and some of that we called in our preseason preview. But uh, we, we all have some takes for this, but we'll, we'll let uh, Jason start us off for this segment, and he's going to tell us about his good, bad, and ugly teams or individuals to start the year. Yeah, the idea came to me today at work and, and being the old man here in the group, it, you know, I, I thought back to the old Clint Eastwood movie, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I thought, you know, we can turn that into a podcast segment. So that's what I decided to do today. And uh, narrowing the list of good, you know, wasn't very easy. But I decided to go with, and, and Sam was talking about Ant and how he can play his way, you know, into that, you know, MVP uh, category. I think another guy who's done that this year, and he's going to be my good, is Tyrese Halliburton for the Pacers. The numbers that that he is putting up, you know, through the first 11 games of the season, you know, are, are pretty remarkable. I mean, he's getting 25 a game, 12 and a half assists a game. Uh, he's pulling down over four boards, and he's shooting 53, 44, 93 across the board. I mean, that's that's just ridiculous. And the Pacers, you know, have the top offense, you know, in the league through the first couple of weeks of the year. They're averaging almost 127 points a game. They're shooting 50%, and they lead the league with almost 31 assists a game. And Halliburton, you know, is the catalyst behind that. I mean, he is playing just off the charts well. And, I mean, their, their assist-to-turnover ratio is one of the tops in the league Halliburton himself is at the top of the NBA when it comes to assist to turnover ratio. I mean, they're seven and four through 11 games. I think they have a chance to play themselves into a five, six seed in the East, maybe if everything holds to form and they can stay healthy. I mean, I think this definitely is a playoff team. The only thing that worries me a little bit, uh, the, the trade-off, you know, scoring 127 points a game is, you know, they're not very good defensively. I think they're one of the bottom three teams defensively in the NBA, even with Miles Turner, you know, in the middle patrolling that paint. So, you know, if they can, if they can play, I mean, they're not going to play at this elite level all season when it comes to the offense, but you also would like to think that they're going to figure out some things defensively. So, the good for me so far through the first couple of weeks is Tyrese Halliburton and everything, you know, he's been able to do for the Pacers this year. The bad, I mean, I had a number of candidates for this as well, but I had to put the Memphis Grizzlies in that category. I mean, they're two and yeah, two and nine through eleven games, and that's despite uh, playing a schedule that's included Washington, New Orleans. Utah twice and Portland twice. I mean, that's that's six games against teams, you know, who have combined for a 40% win percentage this year. So I mean, it's not like they're playing, yeah, it's not like they're playing phenomenal teams. So that slow start is uh, even more ominous when you look at the teams that they've played and you know, let's not forget fellas, this is a team that a lot of people thought the last couple of years with Ja and that emerging young roster, you know, they a lot of people were thinking they were a championship caliber team, you know, going back to uh, just a couple of years ago. So, 
I don't know, man. This is a disastrous start. I mean, they're 0-5 at home. They haven't won a game at home yet. They're only averaging They haven't won a game at home? No, they're 0-5 at home. So, I mean, that's... You cannot get off to a much worse start than that uh, when you're when you haven't won a home game. You're only averaging 108 points per game offensively. You're shooting less than 43 percent from the field. And the crazy thing is, is Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr. are actually playing pretty well. I mean, Bain scoring over 25 points a game. So I mean, that's that also you know, as a Grizzlies fan should make you a little even more concerned. And then, you know, you have the jaw question, you know, when's he going to be available? Is he going to be available? And if he is and does come back, what kind of player is he going to be? I don't know, man, through 11 games, I I couldn't find a much worse situation than what the Memphis Grizzlies are dealing with, you know, right now through the first couple weeks of the season. And then my ugly, I... I kind of went back and forth with this one as well, but I ended up landing on just some of the injuries uh, that we've seen so far early in the season. I mean, I'll I'll just go, I mean, I have a whole laundry list of injuries that different teams are dealing with, but I'll just highlight a couple of them. Uh, Cam Thomas, the start that he got off to for the Nets, just phenomenal. I mean, Jake mentioned that his efficiency and his offensive metrics have been off the charts through the first, you know, six games, but he's out, you know, he's dealing with an injury now. So the Nets have kind of had to shuffle their lineup around and they were also missing Cam Johnson, who was out with some injuries. You got Jamal Murray out, you know, at least for another couple weeks in Denver, he's dealing with, uh, I think it's, is it a knee for him or it's, it's a, it's a leg injury. I know. So he's, He's out right now. Uh, Jake's guy from Detroit, Jalen uh, Duran, you know, he got off to a great start, but he's dealing with an ankle injury. The Lakers, I mean, it seems like somebody's out for the Lakers every single game. Uh, AD and LeBron have missed some games. They've also been without Gabe Vincent, a key guy that they brought over from uh, the Heat this year. He's out two weeks with an injury. Grizzlies, of course, you know, lose Steven Adams for the season with a knee injury. So he's out. We already talked about uh, Tyler Hero uh, missing some games with an ankle sprain. It doesn't look like he's going to be back until December, and he was off to a phenomenal start. I thought he looked exceptional through the first week of the season. C.J. McCollum for New Orleans, out with a collapsed lung. He probably won't be back until around Christmas time. So, I mean, New Orleans is dealing with some injuries. How about Kelly Oubre? I mean, the guy gets hit by a car. I mean, yeah, what the hell is going did, on? How, Insane. How does that? How does that even happen? So he's dealing with broken. And he was those damn Boston fans. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, he he was lights out through the first four games for them, just shooting the ball really well. And Philadelphia's off to an unbelievable start. I mean, you can make an argument that you know they're the best team in the league through the first three weeks. Phoenix, I mean, are we ever, I mean, are we ever going to see D-Book, Beal, and Durant, you know, actually play the, more than one or two games together? I mean, that's not a good start in Phoenix with, with all the injuries that they have. And I feel bad for D-Book because I think he's dealing with a hamstring again. And I mean, that's just a nightmare trying to play 
through a hamstring injury. So hopefully he gets back and hopefully that team can pull things together so we can see what they're capable of doing when everybody's healthy. Really disappointed because Scoot and Anthony Simons are both out for Portland, plus Rob Williams, he's out for the year with a knee injury, and Malcolm Brogdon now dealing with a hamstring. So a nightmare of a start uh, with injuries for the Trailblazers, a team that, you know, we all think, you know, probably isn't going to be very good, but man, when all those guys are healthy, I mean, they <laughs> They, they would be a nightmare to play. And then the Kings, of course, dealing without, playing without De'Aaron Fox, who, you know, is out with an ankle injury. So I guess that's one of the things that's been the ugly for me is just having to see a lot of these key guys for a lot of these teams, you know, already having to miss time with some injuries. So that's my good, my bad, and my ugly through the first three weeks of the NBA season. Yeah, I, I really like the good. Obviously, uh, going back to the last episode we recorded, I'm really high on the Indiana Pacers, and I think that they are a legit playoff team. And I think they can even win a playoff series given the right circumstances. And how about this? 63-6 to turnover-to-assist ratio for Tyrese Halliburton in the last five games. That is Wow. That is prime Chris Paul-type stretches that he's going on right now. And uh, the bad, I know you went with the Grizzlies, obviously – you, as a Grizzlies fan, you'd have to hope things get turned around once you get your franchise point guard back in, in jaw. And unfortunately, I don't think that Steven Adams is coming back for this team. So that leaves the team with a giant hole at center. And we know that Jaron Jackson refuses to play at a high level at the center position. And that leaves the team, it uh, looks like they're 25th in total rebounding. They're getting outplayed in the paint. It's kind of, I mean, if you watch Team USA in, in the FIBA tournament, you could probably get a pretty good idea of what the interior uh, is going to look like for the Grizzlies on both sides of the ball. So I, I like that one. And you got to hope the Grizzlies too. We got to remember they have 14 more games. They're not. They're not even halfway through their jawless stretch here, and they're already seven games back from the Nuggets. So what a nightmare! If they take this, if this trend continues again, they're going to be 14 games back from the one seed by the time Jaw even comes back, and that's not even to mention any adjustment period that might happen there. So, I'm not saying it's over for them or anything, but they have to make sure they don't dig themselves too deep of a hole that they can't get out of, because otherwise, in a very deep West, they have a good chance of actually missing the play-in this year. Yeah, this is not the year to be messing around in the West. Like the Clippers trade for James Harden, they don't look good. This is not the type of this is not the year that you want to you know spend a whole season putting things together when the West is this stacked. This isn't a year where you want your starting point guard to miss the first twenty five games of the season and put you at a disadvantage because the West is is very very stacked this year. For the good, I. My first thought was the Timberwolves. We already kind of talked about them. So uh, also looking westward here, I think for the good right away, and it's for me the Nuggets and the way that they've started this season. We all we knew they were going to be good again, of course, and that they have what's what many people think the best player in the world in, in Nikola Jokic right now. But even without Jamal Murray, they've had these guys stepping up off the bench, playing bigger minutes. Reggie Jackson kind of throwing it back a few years. He looks great. Um, they are once again looking like the team and almost more importantly, the player to run through in the West. Uh, and, and they're doing all that despite the 
shot making from Jamal Murray, who wasn't even quite, I mean, you can expect this after a little championship hangover, but he wasn't even playing fantastically before he got hurt up to what we kind of hoped he would play like if you're a Nuggets fan this year. Um, but I think they're looking great. And like you said, uh, the Tim Worlds are the only team who seem to have somewhat figured out how to game plan against them. So the rest of the West might have to hope they get matched up early because otherwise I don't really know who is even equipped like uh, matchup-wise against the Nuggets uh, come, come April in playoff time. Um, talking about the bad, I was going to mention, so the Bucks have had a pretty solid start um offensively they're sitting at six and four uh they've already played a pretty tough schedule offensively Damian Lillard has been the exact cure that the Bucks needed that big game down the stretch shot making he's already taken over a few games he just had a couple big buckets uh late against the Knicks last night in their in-season tournament game which last year that could have very easily been a game where the game plan totally imploded and the Bucks lose off missed free throws or something like that which is what happened in their series against the Miami Heat last year. So offensively, they look like all their kind of woes have been filled and and look equipped to go into the postseason here. But defensively, uh, there's an interesting kind of statistical discrepancy here. So the Bucks, if you go by points in the paint, the Bucks have the tied for seventh best points in the paint defense, only allowing 46 per game. Um interior I mean you got Brooke Lopez you got Giannis Antetokounmpo that's really all you need to have a very solid paint defense but somehow despite being a top seven paint defense uh overall points per game they're bottom seven they're actually 24th in the league allowing 118 points per game which I haven't been able to watch a ton of the Bucks this year but that makes you think it's got to be a problem with the perimeter defense. I mean, if they're locking stuff down in the paint, but they're still giving up that many points a game, something's going on here. And when you replace Drew Holiday with Damian Lillard, you're, of course, going to really raise your ceiling offensively. But defensively, the Bucks are going to have to figure something out here because you, you look at the East and with guys like Tyrese Maxey and how well he's been playing for the Sixers, the Celtics very perimeter oriented team, especially with Porzingis now, who's a more of a perimeter oriented big man. Um, I don't know who they're going to stick on Jimmy Butler. If they get in a the matchup there, uh, you look at the Cavalier, even the team like the Cavaliers uh, who are off to a rocky start so far, but if Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland are both going at the same time, that's going to be a tough cover for them. Um, and that's not a, unfixable problem I mean they have the the guys defensively but it's just going to be a big test for their first year head coach to see if he can game plan to stop the other powerhouses in the east because otherwise the Bucks are just going to get killed on the perimeter and it won't matter how good their clutch time offense is um and then for the ugly it's I, I'm gonna say the Sixers good start but it's not ugly for the Sixers um who I just mentioned, Tyrese Maxey, just had a 50-point game a couple days ago. It's ugly for James Harden and for the Clippers, who acquired James Harden and P.J. Tucker, who's always a can always be a solid guy in a championship team, but acquired those two for a pretty hefty price tag and are now, what, 0-5 since he joined the team? Is it, is it yeah. 0-5 or 0-4? They haven't, they haven't won yet. Yeah. They haven't won yet, and obviously that team is too talented for that streak to continue. They're going to right the ship and figure things out a little bit here, but 
Um, if you're James Harden, I know he's got to be pissed off right now because you got your former team and the guy you kind of viewed a little, maybe was seen a little bit as like an understudy in Tyrese Maxey, absolutely killing it. And your new team is very much struggling to adjust to um, the system, as as he called himself. So, and, and that's not system. even to say he's necessarily he is the system. That's not even to say that he's necessarily the problem in L.A. I mean, he's had a few. He, he's pulling a the James Harden that we know from the last few years and kind of going on and off with playing really well and not playing so well. But I know that the Clippers front office has to be looking at Philly and seeing how they've been playing these last few games and kind of freaking out a little bit, thinking if they've made a giant mistake. So we'll see how that develops. Obviously, I think the Clippers are going to right the ship right now, but uh, this first 10 games of the season look pretty ugly for James Harden and the Clippers front office. I liked all those choices you had there, Sam. You guys kind of took it away. Uh, with the good, the bad, and the ugly. A lot of the things you guys said were things I had written down to kind of touch on. But uh, starting with the good, I would have to say, Sam, you're right on point with the Nuggets. They look like they're ready to win another championship if the playoffs started tomorrow. So that's a good sign for them. The bad and the ugly for me uh, have one of the teams in common, and it's going to be the Clippers. But we're going to start with the bad because the Clippers, it's ugly in L.A. We're going to start with the bad. And I, it's too early to say I told you so, but the Bulls are four and seven, fourth in the division. This the Pistons are actually really bad. Uh, they're still worse than the Bulls, which I did predict they would finish ahead of them. Still hey, early, like I said, there's can, still there's still some time. There's still some time. You, you, well, you, oh, and yeah, at least yeah, the yeah. Pistons have a path forward the next few years. Yeah, there's just no incentive for the Pistons to win games at this point already. That take might be blown up. But we're, the Bulls are already 4-7, four 4th in the division, 22nd in defense, 18th on offense, uh, their defensive and offensive ratings, I should say. And they're already talking about uh, Zach Levine. Is he going to want to be traded? Do we want to trade him? Is he even our most tradable asset on the team? Is Alex Caruso have a higher trade value than Zach Levine? What are we going to do? What's happening in Chicago? It's exactly what I said would happen. And it's happening very early in the season, which is, I, I think is a tell of what's to come for this team. And I think a team like Sam's Miami Heat could would love to have a guy like Zach Levine and Alex Crusoe come to Miami, you know, for the right price. For the right price. Oh, absolutely. So, that's the bad for me is the Chicago Bulls. I know a lot of Chicago fans will tell me that, you know, Zach and, and DeMar DeRozan are going to put it together and, you know, play better and make, uh, you know, I mean – DeMar DeRozan took over for like a two-week period last year and won the the Bulls like six straight, six, seven straight games. I mean, that can happen at any time. But what does that really mean for you in the playoffs? Yeah, DeMar DeRozan's going to average 40 points for a two-week span, but what does that really mean for your team? Are you winning meaningful games? Right. You know, it's, and, this, and even the more scary thing, Jake, for the Bulls fans is – uh, Levine, DeRozan, uh, Vucevic, uh, Javon Carter, Kobe White, uh, Drummond, Patrick Williams, they, they haven't missed a game. So, I mean, health-wise, we, <laughs> in- we, we talked about all the injuries and everything that all these other teams are dealing with. The Bulls have, ha- have been blessed with really good health. I mean, all these guys have played every game and have played a lot of minutes, and it's resulted, you know, in a 4-7 and seven start. So that's... That's even more concerning. 
And not only have the Bulls failed in free agency and in the trade market, we've seen them trade away Wendell Carter Jr. for Nikola Vucevic, also tagging on draft picks to that trade, basically trading a better center for a worse center and giving up draft picks at the same time. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty. They couldn't have predicted that, but that trade is an F-. And then we look at their draft picks over the last two years. Patrick Williams barely plays for them. He's not an effective player. And then last year's pick, lottery pick, Dalen Terry, is in and out of the G League this year. He hasn't taken any steps forward. So there's no, there's nothing trending upwards for this Bulls team. And I think that they are wise to already think about blowing it up 10 games into the season. And I believe there's a, a college basketball event going on in Chicago, which uh, I can't remember what it's called. I was looking into this today. But every NBA GM is going to be there. And I guarantee you they're talking to the Bulls front office about, you know, how mu- what kind of package are you looking for for Levine? Would you have would you need to trade Caruso and Levine in a package? I think all these teams are going to have some questions for the Chicago front office when it comes to some of their higher quality players. So that's that's the bad for me. And the ugly is the Clippers, which you guys, I think both the ugly for both of you was the Clippers. Am I, or no, the ugly for Jason was the injuries, but Sam's ugly was also yes. the Clippers. Mm-hmm. And I mean, come on, how many, do we really need to see Harden and Russell Westbrook play on the same team again? It didn't work out when they were in their primes. Why would it work out when they're in their early mid thirties? What What are we thinking? And this just makes Ty Lue's job as a as a head coach already an already almost impossible task of coaching a team that you never know who's going to show up. Uh, it makes it even harder because you take away Robert Covington, you take away Nicholas Batum, you take away uh, what's the what's his name? He was a rookie last year. His dad played in the NBA for oh Kenyon Martin Jr. Or yes. Yeah, yeah, his son. He he was a versatile wing for them. So what what happens when you're playing the Nuggets and you want to go small and you have to take Zubac out of the game? You can't do that anymore. You can't put Robert Covington in as your small ball five. You can't have Nic- uh, Nicholas Batum put in minutes at the four slash five to, to space the floor and, and play small. That's no longer an option. Your only options now are play your future Hall of Famers and hopefully they can put together a win because pretty much all of the cards that Ty Lue had up his sleeve going into this year, it's all his, his hand is shown. Teams know how to scheme against James Harden. They know how to take Russell Westbrook out of games. You're just going to rely on Paul George and Kawhi Leonard with, you know, a a washed up version of Russell and, and James Harden. I just, I just don't understand this trade. And are you really going to pay James Harden after this year? What he the number he expects when you're already paying Kawhi and Paul George the most amount of money you possibly can? Are you really going to offer James Harden that contract? So I just the whole the whole move in general becomes a failure for the Clippers, and maybe they put it together. I mean, obviously the talent is there, but that takes getting Russell on the same page. That takes getting James Harden on the same page. Those two players, I mean, Paul George and Kawhi are elite players. I'm not saying anything about those guys. But when you're putting together a winning team, it just seems like they, they're playing on Hall of Fame difficulty. They just stack all the cards against themselves. I, I don't know. It just makes no sense to me. 
yeah, this whole move reeked of desperation from the start, a front office that's seen their Kawhi Leonard and Paul George experiment film fail miserably so far uh, most of it due to injury and then of course that big 3-1 collapse against the Nuggets in the bubble back in 2020 uh, and I just thought the whole time this it was like you said Jake this move didn't make any sense from the start I mean maybe if this was the 2018-19 season where Harden and Paul George both finished first team all NBA uh, Kawhi on the second team with the Raptors about to win the championship and then Russ when he on the third team all NBA that team would have been a world stopper at this point injuries and just age have gotten to those four so much that while yes Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are still elite this just moved just it didn't really make sense at the start and it certainly hasn't paid off on paper yet yeah and it's just I said it before but we've seen the Westbrook and Harden backcourt this is the third iteration of it the whole reason that Harden didn't stay in OKC was because of Russell Westbrook the whole reason Westbrook and Harden ended up outside of Houston was because they tried to pair those two players together. And I understand Russell Westbrook isn't on the contract he was last year, and he, he started the season a lot better. And it make, his production makes more sense in contrast to his contract. But now you throw James Harden in the mix, it's just you're just giving yourself, you're multiplying your problems by 10 by doing that move. And that was, I basically only had bad and ugly takes the good lies in minnesota and denver and we we covered them a lot this episode but that was that was my negativity dump on the the bulls and the clippers teams that you know they thought they could put it together they have the talent but it's not structurally sound no not at all and you know just real here real quickly before we shift gears and wrap things up um i just wanted to touch on the job that uh, Ime Udoka is doing in Houston. I mean, I think all three of us, when they brought in Dylan Brooks and Fred Van Vliet on those contracts, were saying, dude, I mean, what, what, what is that front office doing? But hey, I mean, <laughs> they're six and three through nine games and they're playing some pretty good basketball. And I know all three of us, uh, think that Yudoka is a hell of a coach and what he's done through the first nine games this season with a roster that all three of us were like, I don't know how this is going to work. Uh, you know, uh, hats off to him because he's done a phenomenal job. Yeah, definitely. He's turned Dylan Brooks into an elite three-point shooter this season somehow. He, he's done the impossible. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're doing all of this, Jake, without a major contribution from our breakout guy. Uh, Jabari Smith Jr. has not taken that next step that you and I both thought he would going into this season. I mean, he's only averaging 12 points a game. You know, he's the fifth leading scorer on a team that's led by their big man, the, the Shen Goon, your guy, Jake. You, you said last year, at the end of last year, that he's – you know, uh, an all uh, an all star caliber player, and he's showing out this year. Yeah, definitely, he's broke out this year, and I think that Jamari, Jabari Smith's role with whatever team he ends up playing for for the majority of his career, I think his role is is going to be like a Keegan Murray kind of role. You know, he can give you twenty five points on any given night, 
but he's mostly there to play consistent, good perimeter and inside defense. And, you know, he's more of that kind of connector type player. He's not going to put up the stats that that warrant an all-star appearance or anything, but I think he has potential to be that kind of player that every team wants, you know, like Minnesota found in, in Jaden McDaniels. Yeah, yeah, and Jalen Green uh, has to be looking down the bench, you know, every game before they announce the starting lineups and thinking, man, have I hit the jackpot here. I don't have to play with Porter Jr. anymore. I've got actual <laughs> dudes. I've got actual professionals around me. And that guy, you know, he's responded with yeah. 19 points a game. And I think we all thought that, you know, he has a chance, had a chance to be a really good player. He just had to find himself, you know, in the right, uh, in the right scenario. And boy, with Yudoka as a head coach and the players that he has around him right now, I, I, you got to be pretty happy if you're the Houston Rockets right now. Definitely, definitely. I think that pretty much covers everything we had today. Do you guys have anything else you want to? get out before we head out of here not necessarily but i'm just man i am very happy that uh basketball season is back and getting into full swing for both the uh heat and for baylor who i haven't been able to make a game yet but hopefully in the next few weeks because um the ugly on all three of our answers could have been the chargers every week so just say a little <laughs> prayer for me on sundays not not for my team to win or anything oh, just so i don't man. you know have a heart attack but yeah they, they haven't been too nice to me this year so i'm very glad They've had a tough um, schedule. Very though, glad the basketball right? season is. They have, they have. But man, I'm looking at it. They've uh, Chargers have scored 24 or more points every game except for one, and they're four and five. You guys, the Steelers have only scored over 24 <laughs> points once, and they're six and three. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, hey, it comes down to you. Got to know how to win games. You got to yeah. know how to win games. Clearly, they don't. And uh, if it wasn't for basketball, I'd be taking a very large toll on my mental health. So. <laughs> oh, man. Every time I, I see the Chargers or their score scroll by, I'm like, oh, man, Sam's just got to be in a living hell right now. You know, it, it, whether they're down, whether they're down, you know, big early in the game and then they make this monumental comeback only to end up losing in overtime or whether they have a lead against Patrick Mahomes. And then it's just it's inevitable. I mean, it's just like a bad dream. I mean, over and over again. Yeah, over and uh, honestly, I'm I'm loving the in season tournament so far. I know a lot of people are still we're still figuring out how it's going to fit into the overall NBA landscape, um, but I'm loving it so far just because it gives me a twice a week distraction from what's going on in the NFL with my team. So. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll cover the in season tournament more in the next episode. I still got to learn more about it. I know the courts are definitely a topic of uh, conversation. I personally yeah, like them. Crazy. I'm definitely a fan of custom courts for the in-season tournament, but you know, maybe like the Bulls court where it's all red, that could be revised a little bit, but I think it's going in the right direction with the courts. Yeah, it's pre it's pretty awesome. Yeah, even Tina, she's not a she is definitely not an NBA fan, but uh, I was I can't remember what night it was, but I had a game on and she walked in and she's like, "What where where are they playing that game?" And I, I think it was maybe the Rockets. I think they were playing somebody. And I'm like, this is the different floors that they're breaking out for the in-season uh, tournament that they have in the NBA. And then that's when I kind of lost her. But she, she thought the court was really neat. So, 
you know, and and before we end it, I think the the in season tournament is definitely generating some very competitive play. I mean, that's where we got the the Draymond and Rudy Gobert <laughs> incident. Yeah. That was part of the in season yeah. tournament. So I think it is helping players, you know, play harder when they otherwise would have been taking this part of the season not so seriously. You know, for some of the vets that have already proven themselves. Right. All right, I think Absolutely. that wraps it up. That wraps it up. What are we? What are we sitting at? Do you guys have a time on your mics? Yeah, we're. Yeah. Fifty-six. Yeah. Okay, good. I thought I thought we were way well over an hour at this point. So I think that that's a good a good length here. So, thank you guys for listening, and uh, we'll be back with another episode. Hopefully, breaking down the in-season tournament and any more crazy storylines that come out of the NBA.